was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Thanks once again to Tom Judson for the amazing new arrangement of that theme song. Today, you all know who I'm joined by. It's the second part of my interview with drag legend Charles Bush. I hope you all enjoy it as much as I did. So, I'd like to start by asking you... Asking about, in crafting your solo show, Flipping My Wig, how was it different than the solo shows you've done in, at the very beginning of your career? Um, well, it was very, very different. The solo shows that I did uh, in my 20s before Vampire Lesbians were um, monologues that and occasionally we had some uh, piano music underscoring, but they really were little plays in, in themselves uh, where, um, oh, I would, tell um i would be like all the guests at a, at a british dinner party in the 20s and i would play the you know the various actresses present and then the host and then the servants it was kind of like you know downton abbey and i played all the parts and i would do the dialogue back and forth it's kind of like that um with flipping my wig i mean if i remember flipping my wig it's been so many years that was kind of um there were there were there was a couple uh, there was a lot of mu more music. There was because I was singing already. I did some singing, and I think there was sort of special material with funny lyrics and some songs. And I was telling more telling stories. I think I, it was a little bit kind of like what I later have done in cabaret over the past eight years, where I was telling uh, anecdotes. And then, but then there were a couple set pieces, but um, but they, they were different um, from um, my old material in the 80s because I wasn't playing multiple characters but that's where I came up with the character of Miriam Passman who eventually um, um, was the inspiration for Tale of the Alger's Wife but it was just a monologue where she was Miriam Passman this very uh, emotionally charged uh, New York lady uh, whose dream is to be a cabaret performer and she um, you know she's doing her act and so in the 12-minute piece she's performing her act for for the audience and going off on various tangents about her very her various bitternesses so yeah so it was it was quite different from from what i had originally done so did you ever consider after this going back to sort of a solo career or was this just sort of a divergence from yeah i forget how did it all work out well i didn't i never wanted to go back to um to my original type of solo material. And I mean, it was sort of interesting that my career took this big break and suddenly I got into drag, you know, and doing writing these plays like Vampire Lesbians, which then became my career because um, my early solo work, you know, I was not in drag. I, I was uh, just dressed in a kind of neutral uh, guy's clothes, but I never, I, I, I felt it was necessary to play male characters in those pieces because they were little 
plays. And to tell my narrative, I had to be all the characters, or at least that's what I thought at the time. You know, so, um, and I, I didn't really like playing the male characters, honestly. I, I, I needed them to tell my story, but I, I, I don't think I was ever really inspired by those being an old Irish fisherman or the you know, British butler. I much preferred being the, the glamorous actress who's given up her child and, or the, the perky cockney maid. Those the, and I remember you know, Charles Ludlam, who was a bit, bit of a mentor to me, saw my act and he had great insight. And, and he actually called me on it and said um, that he thought that my female characters were so much more vivid than the male characters. And he said, why don't you just play female characters? And I was very young and I was like, because I have to tell my story. And of course, it's also foolish because you don't have to do anything. There are no assumptions in art. You know, you do whatever you feel like doing. Make it make it work. Yeah, but it took me a while to get over to get over that. Yeah. Yeah, so I, in a way, I mean, it's, it's odd that solo career in the, um, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, I was kind of getting better. You know, just, just when I put an end to it, I had certain breakthroughs with it. And I mean, it would have been curious to see where I would have gone. And some people f- felt that really was the true me. Mm-hmm. And Michael Feingold in The Village Voice, um, I think he felt that that, that those solo shows that I did in the late 80s, not ladies, the solo shows that I did in the late 70s, early 80s was who I really was. And that my uh, becoming the drag actress later was kind of a detour. I, I don't think it was, but, but I, I, I think there are other people who might have felt the same way. Yeah. So after doing your solo show, you did sort of the opposite, where you wrote a few shows that you didn't act in, including The Green Heart and The Tale of the Allergist Wife on Broadway. So how do you find that you write differently when you're not writing a character for yourself as well? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I started, you know, the, the 90s was a really a big period of, exp- of experimentation for me. I tried so many different things. Uh, yeah, and I started writing things that I was not in. Um, you know, the, hmm. it, it always helps if I, it does help if I have someone in mind. You know, um, with The Allergist Wife, it, it, it was inspired by this monologue I did as Miriam Passman and flipping my wig. So in a certain sense, I was writing it for, for myself in a, in, a, in a way. But then um, shortly after I began writing the play, I saw Linda Lavin in a series of one acts called Death Defying Acts. And uh, she was so marvelous. And I thought, oh, well, she really would be great as um, this lady who now is called Marjorie Taub. And I really wanted to have the experience uh, of writing a big, big role for an, for an, an actress of, of a certain age, let's say, just, you know, not a young woman. Uh, and, and just a real big role, because I didn't think people really were writing those plays for these, for these women. And I had the opportunity. I, um, 
I did write, I wrote the book to this musical, The Green Heart, that you mentioned. Um, and that came about because Alison Fraser uh, was a good friend of mine, and, uh, and, and also, and Ken Elliott, who uh, had directed so many of my plays, had also directed Allison in a couple of, of shows. And she uh, was married to a very talented composer, lyricist Rusty McGee. And she had actually optioned the short story, um, The Green Heart, that had been adapted into a movie by Elaine May called The New Leaf with Walter Matthau and Elaine May. And she had uh, optioned that short story uh, to be turned into a musical for her husband to write. And so she, and she got Ken and I involved, Ken to direct it and for me to, to write the book. And uh, we worked very hard on it. And uh, it got, you know, it was, it was problematic. Um, I think, you know, I, I was, I've never really, adaptation isn't really my, my thing. You know, I'm best when it's my, my own idea. Yeah. Some, pe some people really can fly doing adaptation, turn it into their own. So I found with The Green Heart that the two main characters who were from the short story, I couldn't really quite get into them, whereas these secondary characters who I were really from my imagination, then I, I, I soared. And, and, and it became a little awkward because so, so in some ways, Allison, who played Uta, an invented character of mine, and Ruth Williamson, who, who played a character, Mrs. Trager, who was in the short story and the movie, but I, I turned her into a whole different kind of lady. Um, they kind of stole the show, you know, and, and, and in a way, it wasn't quite right because it was not, you know, they were not the protagonists. And so the, the reviews were, were, were quite mixed. But I, I really hit it off with Lynn Meadow, the artistic director of Manhattan Theater Club, who produced it. And she, um, on the opening night of Alger's Wife, she, on the opening night of, of The Green Heart, she said to me that she would love to produce my next play, whatever I wrote, and, um, and that she would like Manhattan Theater Club to be my artistic home. So that was, whoa, you know, that was really quite amazing. And so I, I thought, well, you know, there subscribers are a bit on the conservative side so what what could i do for for them that would be you know right and that they would enjoy and i knew i had this miriam passman character that was very well observed and she kind of was like their subscribers basically yeah and i so this uh, this is uh, so i knew that character and in a way i since i had kind of played it the mini version I could then go further and then, and then being inspired by Linda. And so it all came about. And uh, we did a, after I, after I, I wrote it fairly quickly, if I recall. Uh, and um, we did, I gave it to Lynn Meadow and she said, let's do a reading right away. And who's your fantasy actress to play Marjorie? And I said, Linda Lavin. So, so she got in touch with Linda and uh, we did this reading. And it really was cold. I'm sure Linda just was reading it just straight from the page. And she was so brilliant. And the entire performance was there. Every line reading, it was just, she was just on fire. And it was so thrilling. And so immediately when it was over, we, Lynn and I said, oh, Linda, would you do the play? And mm, I don't know. She didn't think she wanted to work that hard because it was this huge, huge part. But the big arias, it might as well have been a musical. 
spoken arias. But eventually she changed her mind and, and she did it. And, and, uh, and it was so thrilling. And I never, I actually didn't even have ambitions to have a play on Broadway. I had a lovely career, you know, as leading lady of, with my own company and doing what I do and um, kind of away from show business in a certain sense. Uh, I, did, I really didn't have fantasies about, if I had a fantasy, it might have been about acting on Broadway possibly, but not having a play. But when it happened, was that thrilling? Oh my gosh, to see that big marquee at the Barrymore Theater and, and he, hearing 1,200 people all laughing at the same one line that I would come up with. I never ever thought that I could please that many people. It was, oh, it was just absolutely thrilling. And then I got nominated for the Tony Award. And, and I mean, I never thought that was gonna happen. So now that that has happened, do you think you would like to have another play on Broadway? Yes, you know, and it's not for lack of trying either. It's very difficult. At least I've found that the, um, you have to, there's so many ducks have to be in a row. There were, there were a number of plays of mine over the years that I had ambitions for uh, to move to Broadway. But uh, oh, one was a play called Our Leading Lady about the um, Lincoln assassination. And um, another play was called Olive and the Bitter Herbs. Another play, The Tribute Artist, which I, I, I you know, realistically or unrealistically, I, I thought had um, a wide uh, chance for a wide audience. But, the, you know, it all has to be, everything has to line up. You know, and in, in each case, the review, you know, the reviews weren't quite good enough or there was, you know, you really needed stars to, um, you know, uh, attract the, that kind of inv investors. Uh, yeah, so it didn't, it, it didn't happen. The only other Broadway uh, credit I have is Taboo, the musical, which I um, wrote the book to for the Broadway version. I want to ask you actually about Taboo. How did you sort of come to adapt the book that they had used? Well, Rosie O'Donnell, you know, had her TV show, and she and I, I didn't really know Rosie particularly, but she uh, loved The Allergist Wife, and she would always have the various actresses from our, from that show on her TV show, Linda Michelle Lee, um, and Valerie Harper, who replaced Linda. So I guess um, uh, Rosie w w went to London, and she saw this very edgy production of Taboo that was done in kind of a former disco. It was very hip and, and it was all about this period in the early 80s called the New Romantics where Boy George came about and the designer Lee ba performance artist Lee Bowery was, came to prominence. And she was so enthusiastic and she asked, immediately went backstage and said to Boy George, who was, who was not originally in it, he had replaced the actor playing Lee Bowery. And, um, and it was a non-acting role, it was just all singing. Anyway, she said, I want to do your show on Broadway and I want you to come to Broadway and be in it. Um, and he said, of course. So then, but the book, she found the, uh, the book just not, not quite right. It was all kind of fictional. Fictional characters were the leads, but who then meet the young boy George and 
Lee Bowery. So, so she contacted me and I, I didn't, wasn't particularly interested in doing, writing the book to a musical and I don't know, the whole thing, just, it just didn't seem right to change, having a, an existing score and just writing a whole new book. I had never heard of that ever working before. But she uh, is very persuasive, and she said, come to fly to London with me, and we'll see the show. And it sounded just so much, so much fun and outrageous. So I said, okay. And I saw it, and, I, and I, I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I do have something to offer, because this new romantic scene of the early 80s was a bit, sim a bit similar to my experiences in the mid-80s in the East Village. I thought, yeah, maybe I'm a good choice for this. So I, I said, okay. And, and I did research and read Boy George's memoir and a biography of Lee Bowery and I thought their stories were so interesting that rather than making the protagonist this fictional young photographer I was so enraptured with this young actor Ewan Morton who was playing the young the supporting role of, of the young boy George I said well can we make him the star and uh, make it about boy George so so we did and, and uh, I we did all you know I did all this work on it and I got carried away and I wrote part of Lee Bowery. I thought Lee Bowery was a fascinating person when I read about him. So I wrote this big dramatic role for of Lee Bowery and the boy George was going to have to play. Of course, boy George turned out not to be an actor at all. You know, good performer, but just not an actor. Uh, and we, one of the, I, you know, Rosie, who I just adore and, um, you know, took a terrible rap for the show, but she's a great gal, and she um, was a sole investor, and and you know, so she put a lot of money into this thing, and but not she did didn't really have enough money to want to bring it out of town first, which is what it should have been. So we were opening cold, you know, in in New York, and we only had one workshop, which was just a few weeks before the show was going to go into regular production. And Boy George's, I think his numerologist, Dragona, said that he could not fly uh, west uh, um, during that month. So he wasn't present. We had a, another actor, Richie Coster, marvelous British actor, play, do the workshop. And he was wonderful. We were all so thrilled. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, he's not going to play the part. We've got Boy George. And then we, we got into regular regular rehearsals, and it was clear that that just he was not an actor, and even with, a, with an acting coach working with him, that's just not what he does. And uh, and of course, we had so many big personalities going on there. Uh, Rosie O'Donnell just off her TV show, and and then Boy George. Um, that there was a lot of media attention, particularly Michael Riedel in the um, New York Post. Just it was. Uh, catnip for him and why you know why shouldn't it have been i mean it was a big news story and so he, he he was relentless just following this thing and 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 sometimes got it right sometimes got it wrong and particularly particularly irked me was when uh, michael riedel wrote that uh that i was cutting that i was somehow forced to cut um so much of my book and that made i thought it made me out to see my oh, poor pathetic you know little thing when I was, you know, if something's not working, you cut it. And, and clearly, you know, th these scenes were too demanding for, our, for our, one of our stars, Boy George. So, you know, I edited it down to make it tailor it. And that's what, 
And that's what I've always done in a way is tailoring roles for specific people. So I see what, what you know, where, what were his strong points and what is what to avoid. But so that, that kind of bugged me. And, um, mm. uh, and then, I don't know, the show opened and I know there were people who just flipped over it and then the critics for the most part just hated it and and just really were having a field day with trying to hurt Rosie. I don't quite understand what what it was that they were just her arrogant. I mean it's funny, the same same journalists who were so who were, were so critical that Broadway had become all, you know, 20 producers doing a show and and corporate investors and and here Rosie was the throwback to to the original theater producers of of believing in something, uh, putting all her own money in one one producer, one point of view, and yet then they turned in and uh, and ridiculed her for that. You know, it it made no sense. No sense. I mean, one one thing she did that I guess you know she's a per, she's a person of extraordinary um, enthusiasm, and she's completely uncensored, and she. Uh, she just was so excited about the show that she was saying, uh, yeah, so Rosie and her great enthusiasm was, was just telling everybody we're going to win all the Tonys. And I think she was kind of setting herself up. But yeah, so it was uh, um, very disappointing. But the, a lot of people come up to me and say how much they loved it. And it had its groupies who saw it over and over and over. But just... just not enough to keep it going. Although Rosie, she has such enthusiasm. She kept it going for about 100 performances. And uh, anyway, so that, those are really my only Broadway experiences, unfortunately. Although we did one thing, there are two things, two nights that were particularly exciting. Uh, I think, when was that? It was the 20th anniversary. So night, 2005, I guess it was. Um, Julie Halston and I had always been fantasizing about doing a not one night on Broadway, Julie and Charles on Broadway. And it never would have happened, but then Carl Andrus, you know, my dear friend who's directed most of my plays over the past 20 years, he just got tired of hearing us daydreaming and he went to the Actors Fund and proposed it as a one night Actors Fund benefit. And so we did, so we had this incredible night at the Music Box Theater and it, it coincided with the 20th anniversary of Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. And we got the original cast back to, to do, the second act was just a full production of Vampire Lesbians, which was really a one act. And then the first half was a big variety show. And we did sketches and we had a, a gospel choir and dancing boys and singers and special guest stars, Rebecca Luker and Brent Barrett did duets and oh it was just fabulous it was one of the greatest nights of, of our lives uh so and then uh, i guess my other broadway appearance was um just about a year ago um we did a one night actress fund benefit reading of the tale of the alger's wife and this was linda lavin's idea that to to do this and i think it was the 20th anniversary of alger's wife and she thought that in this time around that i should actually play marjorie and that she would play the mother, the part that Cheryl Bernheim created. And uh, so, uh, and then we got Tony Roberts and, and Michelle Lee and Anil Kumar from the original cast to do it. And, uh, and it was, that was a thrilling, thrilling night because I never really thought of playing that part. I, I never did. 
But uh, I was glad to do it for one night. And I can see what Linda meant, though. It's a killer part. I don't know how these ladies played it for, for months and months on end. Oof, my God. But that, I, I'm thrilled to be able to see the reunion. Oh, you were, you were there? For the, yeah. Uh, yeah, wasn't that a, it was a magical night. There's certain nights, it's funny, you know, that you know, there's, there are plays you do that mean a lot and are important in, in a career tra trajectory. But there are a number of one-night events that, for me, were the equal because they were so magical. You know, the night that I got to do a, an actress fun benefit uh, reading of Auntie Mame with this extraordinary cast uh, of Broadway people, and Peggy Cass recreated her role. You know, that Oscar-nominated role, and uh, oh, it was just thrilling. It was an incredible cast of people in it. So yeah, that and and then there have been nights sort of downtown performances of, of when I reading some plays that were thrilling. So I want to go back a little bit in your career to the tale of the allergist wife. A little bit after the opening of that, you survived an aortic aneurysm, which is rare to survive. Yeah. So how did having that? experience help sort of shape the rest of your career? Well, I'm not really sure how much I've profited from my experience. <laughs> I'm not sure if I've learned that much. I, it really did, in a way, cut my life in half. I felt I had been felt so invincible. You know, I, I was so careless in a way, even with my, my own body, even down to the fact that when I would do show plays, that required some kind of physical activity, like throw myself down the stairs. I would, we'd never bother with a fight choreographer. So I'd just throw myself down the stairs and somehow I never got hurt. I just thought I was made of rubber. But having all of a sudden this surprising thing happen where I really should have died because most people within an hour drop dead, but I survived this. Um, I think in a, in a negative way, it, it made me more neurotic, more hypochondriac, hypochondriacal. I don't know what the word, what, what the word is. Um, I think there was a period where I, where I felt that I just sort of said, I said, like, I'm not going to say yes to anything I don't want to. So I'll say no a lot. And I don't know if that's such a great thing, always saying no. But I, I was always saying no. Now I'm saying yes more often. Uh, but I, I uh, yeah, I can't say I've really, I'd rather it hadn't happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were there any, was there anything you said no to that you now wish you could do? Oh, that's a good question. Um, no, not really. You know, um, I, I was offered, um, nothing I've ever offered turned out to be a great success. Well, no, that's, Actually, that's not true. That's not true. Um, I, uh, most of the musicals that I've been offered to to write, um, other people took, and they they weren't successful. Uh, there was one, and I, and I it's 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 it'd be uncouth of me to uh, to say there was one show that was offered to me first to, to write the book that um, I, um, I, don't know, I I didn't really get it. And, didn't want to get involved and, and it became a huge hit and, and when I would pass by that marquee during the you know 
eight years that I ran, I'd, or whatever it was, I'd think, oh man, I really blew it. But probably not. If I wrote it, it may not have been a hit. You know, we, there's certain things you can do and certain things you're right for and certain things you're not. And, so I want to ask you how you came to do movies, which you did of two of your plays, Psycho Beach Party and Die, Mommy, Die. So ah. who was it? Was it you who came up with the idea of doing them as movies? They really were kind of um, tossed into my lap, miraculously. Uh, I think um, Psycho Beach Party, um, my, my longtime manager, who recently passed away, Jeff Melnick, who was an enormous, just played an enormous role in my, my career, he, he insisted that he thought Psycho Beach Party could be a movie, and I didn't get it. I, I thought it was a stage, really a stage piece. Didn't really see it. But he pursued it, pursued it for about eight years. And I, I just wasn't even aware of it. I, I didn't even think about it. And then, and then all of a sudden, all the pieces came together, and he began representing a young filmmaker, Bob King, and it all just sort of happened. And that was very exciting. That kind of got, got me uh, uh, into the whole idea of, of movie versions of my plays. And then shortly after that, um, I did Die, Mommy, Die in L.A. It was just a, a play that we just, Ken Elliott was living in L.A. and wanted to work with me and do another play while he was there. So I rather quickly wrote um, this piece and for us to do. And while I was in L.A., I met these producers who wanted to work with me and, and it all came together amazingly quickly. And that was just thrilling. Making Die, Mommy, Die was one of the great, great experiences of my of my whole life i just to star in a movie i mean i don't doesn't get better than that I, and the cast is so great and, and i adored the director mark rucker who was who was from the theater you know and uh it was his, his first and and turned out his only film he died he died young but he was a wonderful fellow and we just hit it off great and he was so prepared you know it just um it was just a dream experience, and I, I every minute of of the twenty one days that we shot that movie, I was in this state of such joy, just couldn't believe that that this wonderful thing had happened to me. That I was having this experience of playing these scenes, and having Jason Priestley the leading man, and Natasha Lyonne, and Francis Conroy, and Stark Sands, Philip Baker Hall. I mean, they were all just marvelous. Oh, the whole thing, it just was like a charmed experience. And I've been trying, and, and, and after that, um, you know, I really was desperate to make more movies. But, but you know, I was lucky because they were kind of handed to me. I did another film, oh, about 10 years ago, called A Very Serious Person. And, um, and that actually came very quickly. Daryl Roth, producer, has been a great uh, friend to me. And she, I met Daryl. Uh, because she was the uh, one of the commercial producers of The Alger's Wife. And we've just had a wonderful friendship and collaboration for all these years since. She's just a wonderful person, and uh, she's champions a number of, of theater artists and, and really just is there, there for us as friend and, and um, producer. So, so it's a very serious person. She produced that. Uh, just out of, I told her about that I wanted to do this, and she made it happen. And now I'm I'm actually I'm so excited. Um, 
I'm in pre-production for a movie that we start shooting October 5th. And it'll be my first film since Very Serious Person. Uh, so I think that's over 10 years. And I'm so excited. And we, we're, we're getting a wonderful cast together. Um, I've co-written it with, with Carl Andrus and we're, we're co-directing it. And uh, I'll be playing the lead with uh, Julie Halston, my longtime buddy, and marvelous young actor, Doug Plout. And who else is in it? Um, Tim, Tim Daly is our, our, our leading man. Marsha Mason and um, Andre DeShields. Is there anybody else? Uh, oh, Margaret Cho. Wonderful Margaret Cho. And we're still casting, so uh, there, there are more people coming up. But we, we start soon, and uh, it's all very exciting with the sets being built and designed and costumes. And it's an this will be an, an, an original story. It's a contemporary uh, caper comedy where Julie and I are just oh, running around causing trouble. <laughs> It's set in the it's set in the world of of, of old movie collectors, and uh, in, the, in the movie we find a rare print of a silent lost silent film, and, and oh, it's madcap hilarity ensues. So I just can't wait till uh, October fifth. That, that we, sounds great. Uh, yeah, it's thr thrilling. So this movie that you were just talking about, it's a little different from your other movies because you're working with at least a few people who you work with on stage. For your movies of Psycho Beach Party and Die, Mommy, Die, it was mostly, an, it wasn't the same group of people. No. So how did you feel like the play sort of went differently with? Hmm. Um, well, no, I, Psycho Beach Party was tricky because you know, I didn't really have that big a part. It was, it was, uh, I had originally played uh, Chiclet, the, the Gidget kind of char lead character, and it was a very stylized theater piece. When the, you, this was quite a few years later, uh, I was now, I guess, in my, how old was I at that point? Um, in my 40s. And it just, we knew, knew that it just wasn't gonna be that stylized having a guy, middle-aged man playing the teenage girl. We wanted to have more realism to it. But the producers really wanted me in the movie and I wanted to be in the movie too. So um, the choice is who would I play? And I could have played the mother, but I, I didn't really want to play that part. And I, but the story, uh, Bob King taught me a lot about screenwriting and he re really helped me um, open it up. And, and it, it's, a, it's very different from the play. It has almost a, half the plot is completely different. It's much more of a thriller, which wasn't in the, in the play. And so there was a murderer in the um, plot. And so if there was a murderer, therefore there had to be a detective. And so I thought, oh, that, well, that'd be kind of a fun part for me to be this sort of Susan Hayward um, police lieutenant. And so I, I loved playing that. But, but I, it, was, it wasn't that big a part. So out of the 20 days shooting, I maybe was there 10 of them, something like that. And... Uh, uh, so I, I didn't really get to know the actors terribly well. And there was some wonderful young people. Amy Adams is one of her very first movies. and uh, You can tell when somebody's got it. She, she had a rather small role, but it, it was really clear that this girl was not only very talented, but so focused. 
I was not surprised at all that she um, had a big career. And then Lauren Ambrose had played uh, kind of nice supporting roles in movies. But this was the first lead she had. And it was another person. It was very clear that this is a wildly talented person who's, you know, if, if they have the right luck, will have a great career. And then she got um, six feet under. Yeah, but I, I didn't get a chance to really act with them much. Um, and then Die, Mommy, Die, uh, well, they were all just wonderful actors. You know, and so even though I'd never worked with them before, I, they, were so, they were very respectful of me, which is, which is always nice. Um, <clears throat> yeah, all the, the, the cast and, and Die, Mommy, Die, they were very respectful of me, and I, and I was impressed by all of them. And I, I, I was thrilled to to work with Frances Conroy. She's a marvelous actress and lovely, gentle, gentle person. I loved playing those big scenes with her. Yeah, that, that was um, just a great experience. So when you were acting in A Very Serious Person, you were playing a character out of drag and not as, I don't know, not as outrageous, sort of. So how was that different, especially on screen? Um, I had such a great experience working, doing Die, Mommy, Die, and, and particularly I loved playing the rather quiet moments of that movie. Uh, and I, I, I really admire the kind of film acting that's quite minimalist and that is very subtle. And I wanted to have that more of that experience. And, and when I had an opportunity to write a, a movie that Daryl would produce, I thought, well, you know, I guess the safer thing would be, would have been to do an outrageous comedy, but I had this opportunity and, and I wanted to, to see if I could do that kind of movie acting that I admire. And um, so I, so therefore I wanted to be out of drag, play a part uh, closer to my own physicality. And so it was not going to be a, a parody, a movie parody or homage, and so I would just be a contemporary guy. That said, I, I think I was still so scared, insecure, at getting out of drag, that I wanted something to latch on to, so I gave him an accent. I made the character Scandinavian, and I, I think it was a bit of a, slight bit of a cop-out. Um, there, there really was no reason why he should have been European. I justified it. I think that he was sort of an outsider and it gave him a, a bit of a mystery because there was a mysterious quality to him. But I, I, part, a big part of it was just that I thought the accent would just be something to latch onto. Now in this new, new movie, I play a male character uh, again, but who's rather flamboyant and, and kooky. And, and then in the, play, in the movie, I have to get into disguise several times and and so it's um, and it's 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 an outrageous comedy. So it's it's very much in my in my wheelhouse, I guess you'd say. So now I want to ask you about some of your later plays. How did you think that after sort of taking this break a little bit to write the tale of the Alentris wife and do movies and do taboo, how do you feel like your style of sort of satire had changed? Well, I've gone back and forth between doing plays in, in really my 
more trade trademark style, which are, are homages to classic film, Shanghai Moon and um, uh, Cleopatra and the Confession of Lily Dare. Um, I'm probably skipping a couple, but uh, and then other plays that are more in the in the line of the allergist's life, like um, Olive and the Bitter Herbs. And I, I enjoyed going back and forth. <clears throat> the the play that kind of straddled the two was a very ambitious play called The Third Story, and I was able to get a, a one of the few times I've actually rode under commission was with the La Jolla Playhouse. Chris Ashley uh, gave me a commission to write a play for for them. We'd had a very good experience together uh, doing a, a revival of my play, The Lady in Question, at Bay Street Theater, and uh, Chris and I really hit it off. And then he and then he got this great position as artistic director of La Jolla Playhouse and said he'd like uh, me to do something there. So uh, I thought, well, with commission, let me try to really make a leap and do something different. And it was a very ambitious idea of taking three stories in three different theatrical styles, but have them all interwoven and, and ultimately it all kind of makes sense, but it, it, it I think was almost impossible to, to pull off. Right. I, 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 one of the stories is naturalistic set in a dreary hotel room in Omaha. Another was a outrageous, um, kind of a science fiction, campy science fiction gangster film parody. Another was a, a my invented Russian fairy tale. And I think the outrageousness of the the audience so it enjoyed the outrageous campy parts that when they had to go back to the jury hotel room, it just seemed you know uh, and we did everything we could to to liven it up. We had Kathleen Turner you know playing the part in new york and but even with her it just it it just it's almost like the you know the movie i don't know there was a movie called Julie and Julia a few years ago. And, and it was two stories. One was was Julia Child, uh, her success story, and then the other was a, a young girl, young woman in Queens who's writing a blog. You know, no matter how well done those scenes with, and it was Amy Adams playing the young woman. The Meryl Streep as Julia Child was so outrageous and captivating that you kind of didn't want to go back to the the lady in Queens, no matter how well acted. So I, I, in a way, third story was, was like that. I, I, I don't know if it ever really would have worked, but we really tried hard and we did it first at La Jolla and then we were able to do a New York production um, with uh, the uh, Manhattan Class Company. But it just, you know, that never quite worked, but it was an interesting experiment. Keep, keep trying and you must dare to fail. You know, and uh, just, you can't you, you you can't stop from exposing yourself to failure. You, I, I find just um, mm. when I so often my failures tend to come because someone just offered me a great opportunity to do whatever I wanted to do, and I could have played it safe. And I had nice success probably, but in each case, I thought, 
well, this is a great opportunity. Why not try something I've never done before? <laughs> it never, never quite works, but, but at least I, I tried. So with Judith of Bahulia, which was another of your recent plays, you did a parody of a biblical epic. How did you sort of stage that on, I believe it was Theater for the New City, which is a small-ish stage? Yeah, I've got a relationship with a number of nonprofit theaters. Manhattan Theater Club, um, Primary Stages Theater, did a number of shows there. But in a certain sense, a very important uh, place for me has been Theater for the New City, which is an off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway theater complex on First Avenue and 10th Street. It's, it was founded in the late 60s by a remarkable woman, Crystal Field, who still uh, uh, runs it. And, and in a way, she's kind of my artistic mother. You know, she produced my very first play in New York uh, in 1982 called Before Our Mother's Eyes. And it was, you know, kind of a dis small disaster, but she uh, kept faith in me. And I've done a number of plays. And so in the last couple of years, it seemed that whenever I would have like a professional disappointment, I would then go back to Theater for the New City and just do a play just for fun. We, uh, Carl and I would figured out a way of, of just having a few friends who were very generous with their money, um, pick up the tab and, uh, we didn't have to invite any critics. We could just do the play for our friends. And, and I just posted on Facebook and we could sell out the whole 24 performance run in advance. And, and I could just do whatever I felt like doing. And um, there's no pressure at all. Uh, and I'd collected some more actors over the years who I've just enjoyed working with like Jennifer Van Dyke and Christopher Borg, Jennifer Cody, Ashley Morris. And, uh, and so we've done a whole series of these plays and it's just been a lot of fun. You know, we, we, very little pressure, just all, everybody's doing it just, just for the joy of it. And uh, we did Judith of Bethulia and that was, as you said, it was a biblical epic. And we were, because it's nonprofit, we could have, you know, a few more people in it. You know, if you're working even for like a, a regular nonprofit theater, if you have a cast of more than six, they start rolling their eyes. Mm -hmm. But we had about 12 people in this, which is kind of a lot nowadays. And I, I had this, you know, idea that Car Carl, you know, nixed, but I still think it would have been fun. I thought that we should every put an ad in, uh, like the village. Well, I don't know, Kent, the village voice, I guess, was gone, but I don't know, put an ad somewhere backstage. You know, be be in an off off Broadway show. Call this number, it, and and that every night at seven o'clock, whoever wanted to be in the show would just show up, and <laughs> we'd have a rack full of costumes. They find some in a wear, and then we would just stage them in the couple of crowd scenes as lepers and townspeople. And I thought it'd be fun, but, oh, you know, Carl's much more realistic minded. You know, so where, where would we put them? There are no dressing rooms. Oh, you know, we'd have to pay them something. Well, you know, I don't know. So it ne never happened. I thought it was, I thought it was a good idea. But so consequently, 
we had a few actors who were running back and forth as you know, changing out their lepers rags into being courtesans, into being, you know, uh, townspeople and soldiers. It, we, we, we got the, the effect. So we did that. And then um, we did a version of Cleopatra, which I really enjoyed doing. That was a lot, a lot of fun. And I got a chance to work with the marvelous actor, Tony Sheldon, who was um, created the lead role in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert in Australia on the stage in the musical and then did it in London and then New York and was nominated for Tony and he's a marvelous actor. And that was so much fun. He played Caesar to my Cleopatra. I just loved working with him. And then uh, I guess after Cleopatra, I guess was our last most recent play, um, The Confession of Lily Dare. And uh, I adored doing that play. <clears throat> we were able to transfer it through primary stages to the Cherry Lane Theater which is a, a little theater five minutes from where I live, where I, where I always I always fantasize about performing there. Before Lily Dare, but after Cleopatra, you wrote the tribute artist, and then oh. after, after that, you took a little break, not too long, but longer than you had before. So was there a reason for that? Yeah, yeah. Um, the tribute artist, I thought it was a very interesting play. I, I thought it'd be interesting to take. Uh, I had never done a, a role where I where I was playing a, a a man who has to dress in drag to impersonate a person. You know, that kind of Charlie Zan, Tootsie, Mrs. Doubtfire kind of part. I always I've always just played women. You know, I don't play. I haven't played. I never I've never played a a drag queen or a, or a drag performer. I'm just always play um play women but i thought it'd be interesting but to to do it from a, a gay perspective and not not have it be you know the usual thing where it's a heterosexual man who has never done drag before and somehow has to dress up as a woman and and the big part of the humor is is that he doesn't do it way he does it badly at first and then figures it out or or he keeps getting caught without his wig on and, whoa you know uh, that sort of thing you know um some like it hot and all that. uh i i wanted to, i thought it'd be interesting to take it from a different perspective that what if it was someone who was very androgynous and very comfortable with their their female self and was actually very good at in at, at, at assuming the role of woman because it's part of who they are that they just are very fluid that way and um and usually in those movies since they're usually done from a very heterosexual point of view uh an element is always of what's called psychologically homosexual panic where where when the guy is posing as a woman there's another another heterosexual man that finds himself attracted to the guy just the woman and a lot of comedy comes out of that and that's kind of a staple of of all of those those movies but i thought well, you know what would it be if if i if the character the guy was gay and was actually attracted to the to the guy who's attracted to him as a woman, blah blah blah. So, so you're flipping it around, and I thought it, I thought it was very interesting, and and you know, and, and then later, you know, when when the show, the musical Tootsie opened, and I noticed, I read how, how a number of of 
transgender activists um, really, it, really, it's bothered them that that trope of um, the man posing as a as a woman. And uh, I I thought that what we did was actually um, quite innovative and um, edgy in a, in a very interesting way. But um, for the most part, the critics didn't really buy it. Uh, they, um, I think they seemed to be, couldn't get past that it wasn't the old fashioned um, version that, you know, I wasn't doing all those, getting trapped with my wig off and they, they didn't like it for whatever reason. But I, that was a big disappointment to me because I, I had um, probably unrealistic expectations. I, I, I thought it was awfully good and I thought that it, it could have, moved to Broadway. I thought it had commercial potential. And then when the reviews weren't, weren't really weren't good enough to try to justify it and, and there was no interest in transferring it. And I didn't have any, any management at that time who could have invited the right people. It, it just, it, the whole thing really was unrealistic on my part. It, it, but it was a big disappointment. And it kind of plunged me into a bit of a depression or a just disappointment. and. I went through really kind of a rather long period of um, doubt and rumination and just all, all, all that. And, um, and Carl is so sensitive to my um, moods and frustrations. So he, he has always pushed me out of this unhappiness by insisting we go back to the theater of the new city and, and do a play just for the fun of it. And so, so that's how Lily Dare came back. Just to, and I, I loved it. Uh, I love movies um, where actors, old movies where actresses age a lot, where they go from girlhood to maturity to old age. And, you know, it's a tour de force. And I've always wanted to do that kind of part. You know, so this was a chance to 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 do that, and and I, you know, got to play so many different facets of this character because she starts off as a kind of Gigi like young girl, uh, turn of the century, and she becomes a, a Marlena Dietrich like cabaret entertainer, then the Madam of a string of brothels on the Barbary Coast, then an old waterfront alcoholic saloon singer. You know, I just I adored it, and and what was interesting about that play, what we were attempting to do, was um, well, Carl and I have we've been experimenting over the past twenty years with the bat with these in these genre parody plays, the balance between comedy and drama, and sometimes we had a kind of a failure many years ago with a play called Queen Amarantha, which was just. Humor, totally humorless <laughs> and, and did, didn't work. And then we, you know, each of the plays had their Shanghai Moon, Die Mommy Die, all of them had their dramatic moments, but they were more comic. And, and we were curious with, with Lily Dare, which was an homage of, of tearjerker movies, the, the challenge was could we actually have a lot of fun? With the the old movie conventions, you know, and, and have it be really get some big laughs, 
but was it possible to get the audience really so involved in the story that they would actually be emotionally moved as they would if they were watching these old movies? That was the, the challenge. And I, and I was just delighted when we, were, when we did the show that um, you know, there were these extended dramatic moments and then we would diffuse it with a big laugh. But the audience really took the ride with us and, and you really, we could audibly hear people sniffling and, and, and weeping at the, the, at the end. And I, I just adored it. I, you know, I, I loved playing it. And I was very fortunate too. The cast were so highly skilled. You know, and I wrote the roles for these people. And um, J- Jennifer Van Dyke is a marvelous actress and classically trained actress. And we've done about 11 different shows together now. And she, you know, can just go from comedy to drama so effortlessly. And, and all of them did. Nancy Anderson, and Howard McGillan, and Christopher Borg, Kendall Sparks. Um, I don't, am I leaving anyone out? I don't think so. They're just very, very skilled actors and could, could, could do that. Because, you know, you got to be so careful. You know, with the audience, if you... Um, you, the death would be if they you, you get a big laugh then go dramatic and then they um, uh, start la- still start laughing and thinking that you're being campy that uh, that have just been devastating to me and it, it, it really never happened there were times I, I had to use every every bit of technique that I've accumulated in 40 years where I would, we would get a big, huge laugh, and then I had to go right into a dramatic moment. And some of the people were, st- were you know, were so enthusiastic that, and then they kept, they were just sort of assuming that my next response was going to be comic, but it was not going to. And I had to really experiment with pauses and pacing to to give them the give the audience the clues that. No, now we're now we're back. Now we're dramatic again. You know, so it was a fascinating experience. I I, I loved it. Now I don't, I don't know really if I'll do another play or not. I, I don't know. I, I, it may be if it's my last play. It was a good one to go out on. You know, I got nominated for a bunch of awards, and we closed. You know, our limit, limited engagement ended on March fifth. I mean, just in the nick of time with the pandemic. Um, if we had, you know, had extended the run, we would have been closed under under a cloud. So it, it all just worked out, and um, but I, I, it, it may very well be my last play. I, I these are, I, I like playing big parts, you know, and, and the roles I write for myself are very demanding. Energy goes, and I'm on stage all time. If I'm not on stage, I'm doing a quick change into the next costume. So, so you did write a play for a virtual format, Visitors in the Dark. So how was your writing it sort of different? Oh, no, that was an old play. Oh. No, no, no. That's oh, funny. I wonder if people thought that. But, yeah, I guess they would. Um, yeah, no, um, you know, all these different theaters that I've been involved in are all trying to, you know, stay alive during this pandemic by doing um, virtual readings. And I've, and I've done a whole slew of them now. My God. You know, I've done a number through Seth Rudetsky's and James Wesley's um, plays in the house. And I've revisited a number of my old old vehicles. 
uh, Lily Dare we did with the, full, the original cast, um, Divine Sister with the original cast, um, Die, Mommy, Die, Allergist Wife. Uh, yes, well, Theater of Inner City, and they were doing a series of um, uh, new plays for virtual streaming. I didn't have a new play, but I, I sort of had a new play. I had a play that I wrote a couple years ago, and it was sitting in the trunk. So we took it out, and it really was kind of the perfect um, play for that format because it's really, I think, a problem with the play is that it's just four women in a room talking, <laughs> so nothing really happens. So it worked well for the uh, Zoom. It was interesting. It was the first play of mine that I've done for one of these virtual streaming platforms that I hadn't actually done a full production of where I knew where the laughs are. So this was a little odd reading it without any you know audio response so i you know i had no idea if it was funny or not and uh it was it was nice when people wrote in specific lines that that they liked and oh uh, okay check that one off <laughs> I, I don't think we'll ever do it um there's kind of a, a theater for the city made it sound on their website that that they were going to produce the play but it's it's back in the trunk and it's not, it would need a lot of work and i don't think i want to do it so did you, did, you did you see it? I did see it. I did see it. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. A nice, good cast. Yeah. yeah, it was. So I know you mentioned that Lily Dare might have been your last play. Mm. Is there still another genre you would like to parody, or do you think you've done most of the ones? Well, I have a list of uh, notes of different uh, movies, genres that I wanted to touch on, and or theatrical genres, and I guess I probably won't ever get around to it. But uh, oh, one point, uh, oh, one point, I want to do kind of how the West was won and do a, uh, um, kind of a Western epic, you know, not with gunfighters or you know saloon girls, but more we were like in you know covered wagon settling this great country. <laughs> Julie Halston was going to be a, a beaver trapper from the Adirondacks. So yeah, it, it, we, I, it, sometimes I just, they don't, it's, it's just a fantasy, even in the dressing room where, I don't know, I, I just start going around the room talking about an idea that I have and going to all the different actors at the dressing table, like, oh, and you should play this one and, and you should play that one. And it never really gets further than that. But, but I, I enjoy that game. Mm. So another thing you're doing during quarantine is writing your memoir. So yeah. has it been fun or has it been difficult to sort of review your whole life? It's been It's been going on for years. I've been working on this book for, I don't know, I can't remember when I was it. Uh, maybe five years, perhaps. Um, yeah, I've been working on this book for at least five years because I, I had no idea what the uh, form or the structure would be. I just... So I just pour it all out and then see where it takes me. But I, I'm excited about it. Uh, and it is interesting that you kind of, you're, you're too young because <laughs> you're at this point, but you know, when you're my age, it's there are things you've forgotten, particularly details that you've forgotten. But when, once you get into this memory zone, all these mysterious doors begin to open up. And you start remembering things that in crazy details, uh, some a neighbor's dog's name, you know, things that you would never in a million years think you remember. And it's just you kind of 
get into this, um, I don't know, meditative zone where you just start, you're there to remember and, and by gosh, you start remembering. So it's, it's been interesting. And, and then, you know, you, at some point there's certain scores that you want to settle with people who did you wrong. And I, and then I, you know, I write it all down and, Oh, later I look at it and think, well, did they possibly have a point of view? <laughs> possibly. <laughs> Was I 100% in the right? In the right? Hmm. So I, I go back and I uh, alter it. Or, or um, sometimes I start uh, feeling very warm feelings about somebody from the past and, and go back in and all of a sudden they, they start coming off a lot nicer <laughs> in the book. I haven't had the reverse yet, or I've uh, turned on anybody. Yeah, it, it's a bit interesting. So yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of done, and now it's in the hands of an agent, and we have to see if somebody want to buy it. But I had a, a great thing happen to me a few weeks ago that I still can't quite believe it happened. That uh, a chapter from the book that I fashioned into a standalone short story was published in the New Yorker, and, and that's just incredible. I mean, I, it doesn't really get any better than that as far as literary fiction I, I can't believe it was accepted and and ran on their website just really uh, it was a, a quite an emotional thing for me to uh, have that accepted and then the last thing i want to ask you is how do you think theater can come back or will come back well I, i'm a very optimistic sort of half glass half full kind of person i i really not a cynical um dark person and, and, and one could easily be you know and, and you, you could look at it in a very discouraging way but I, I can't believe that 2,000 years of live performance just kind of ends you know and I, and I don't believe that Broadway theater after I don't know 150 years just that's it you know mm. uh, cobwebs in the at the Barrymore theater you know I don't I, I eventually you know I think we're going to have a, a vaccine within a year. So I, I would, I would think I'm no expert in, no, and we'll, we'll be back. And, you know, it's Thorn Wilder wrote a famous play called the skin of our teeth, which is all about the 2000 years of civilization that is always about to be destroyed. But by the skin of our teeth, we survive. And I, I think that all, all will happen. There are certain interesting things have come about. I think the Zoom thing, I, I, I think the Zoom play, I wouldn't mind seeing that <laughs> go the way of, uh, I don't know, the Edsel or, or whatever, but um, it's, I, I could see doing a reading of a play if you were working on something and wanted just to hear a draft and get some actors together and, and can't get them into your living room, I could see that surviving. and. Um, and and I have to say, you know, we were uh, trying to staff uh, this movie that I'm making, and we had about eight-hour days of, of inter Zoom interviews. And I kind of thought that was actually a good thing. I, I think it was rather relaxing for the people interviewing for the positions to be in their own home and not have to, you know, drag themselves on a hot subway for an hour and us all sitting in some office and then waiting in the waiting room. and nervous or you know bored and then having to present themselves in a, in a good way and or 
you know, it, it all. I, I think that that, you know, is is kind of a nice thing. So I, I think we'll have. Um, I think it stopped. Uh, yeah, are you here? Um, so I, I think um, you know some interesting things from the technology will we'll save. Uh, I, but I, it is scary. I, you know, I read all the the, the terrible predictions of of you know, New York is finished and all this, and <laughs> I, I, I refuse to to believe it. I, I hope it. I hope it's, none of those things are true. Yeah. So I'm thank you so much for doing this podcast. It was a pleasure for me, and I'm sure for all the listeners to hear all your amazing stories. Listeners, thank you for tuning in to both parts of my interview with the legendary Charles Bush. As always, remember to tune back in on Monday when we are joined by another very special Broadway guest. I also have an announcement to make. Backstage Babble is decreasing its schedule to only Mondays. We will no longer be putting out episodes on Fridays. This will make things easier for me, and it will enable me to continue to bring you the same kind of A-list theater people that I have so far. We also have some exciting guests coming up on this podcast, including Hello Dolly and Peter Pan veteran Sandra Lee on Monday, as well as cast members from Applause, 42nd Street, and more. Thank you.